Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is God's Word. Please be seated. We're in a series on prayer, and we have said as a proposition each week that we have a privilege as Christians to commune with God moment by moment. That a way has been made in prayer that we can reach out to God and have communion with Him wherever we're found, in whatever situation we're in, in all of life. We can be continual in prayer. It could be a rocket prayer where we, we see something or something comes to mind and it's before us and we pray for it right then. Or we can, in reading, we can begin to, in reading the Scriptures, we can be, be reaching out in prayer to God. God, teach me. God, you are teaching me. God, uh, you're, you're growing me. We can intercede in prayer for other folks. There's a number of different ways that we can pray, but when we pray, we're in communion with God. This morning, we're going to look at anxiety and worry and needless fretting as one of those things that can break our communion with God. The way that it begins to intrude and make our prayers either seem very plastic, if they're in existence at all, or very formulaic and institutional, cold and unheard, is if we bring Uh, an attitude of anxiety and worry into our time of prayer, and then we leave that time of prayer with those same worries and anxieties and fretting. The problem is that it's very, very hard when we are filled with worry, filled with cares, to trust God with those things that we have trusted Him spiritually, but it's hard to trust Him with those things that we fear after physically. 
So we're going to look at anxiety this morning, and I want to show you three things. First of all, I want you to look at life and see the Creator who gives life. Then I want you to look at creation and see a Father who values you. And then I want to look at the two kingdoms that Christ has set before us and see the right king to seek. And we're going to look at these three briefly in forms of argument that Jesus himself gives to the anxious, worried heart. Look at verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What does anxiety have to do with prayer? Philippians 4, verses 5 and 6, the Apostle Paul, writing to this church plant in Philippi, says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And he doesn't say that. This is not poetry. He's not waxing eloquent. He's saying, you should have a state of mind and heart that is always filled with joy. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. So Paul gives an admonition here as well to do not be anxious. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So we see that anxiety has a great deal to do with prayer, that prayer is a vehicle by which we can be relieved of the care that we have for our physical needs, of food, water, shelter, clothing, of finances, and of material possessions. The worrying that we do over that finds its relief in praying. How? Back to Matthew 6. Jesus is giving a command here. And what he is doing is he is now going to put forward three arguments to help us mentally and spiritually get over that divide. The divide that we create when we say, I trust God spiritually and I trust Him with my spiritual needs, but I don't trust Him with my physical needs. I don't really trust Him there. And so Jesus is going to come, and He is like a very good lawyer. He's going to begin to argue with His listeners. He's going to put forward three logical things for them to consider, to look at, to win their hearts over that God most certainly can be trusted with our physical cares as well as our spiritual cares. And his first argument is he's saying, I want you to fix your eyes on God as the creator of the very life that you're worried about. What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you put on, and he asks a question, is not life, more or bigger than food, and the body more than clothing. And what he's saying is he's saying, I want you to consider more than simply provisions. I want you to consider more than simply the, the, 
the clothing that you're wearing. Think about life. Think about how wonderfully and intricately you are made. I would love to, this would be a great passage to, to launch and make a case for God as our creator and against evolution that does not include God as the originator of all of life. Jesus comes forward and he's saying, consider the very life that you have as coming from God as your creator. And if he gave you life, can he not be expected to take care of it? The Apostle Paul gives us in Romans 8, verses 31 and 32, a similar argument. Here, he is arguing about God's spiritual care for those that he's forgiven. Not his physical care, but it's a similar argument. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's saying, if God gave you his son in order for the forgiveness of sins, how much more can you not trust him with all things in your life? And now Jesus is saying, if God created you, how much more you can consider he values your life and he will sustain it. When I was 12 years old, my, doc, my mom took me to a doctor. And she was beside herself. She said, doctor, I don't know where to go, but... Um, he was a specialist, and she said, my son suffers tremendous headaches, and we don't, we don't know what to do about it. We've given him aspirin, but he will hit himself in the head, and the reason he's doing that is because that gives him some relief from his pain. He will huddle himself in a dark room and can only go to sleep if he has an ice pack, if there's no noise and it's completely dark. What's going on? Well, you can diagnose that now. We couldn't diagnose it on the farm that I grew up on. I had to go to a specialist. And he said, ma'am, at 12 years old, I've never seen this, but your son has migraines. How often does he get these? And she said, about three times a week. Wow. This is is tremendous. An examination. Father, she said, well, he also has a pain. He he keeps talking about his stomach hurts, but it's on the opposite side. You know, what is going on? It's up in here. He just keeps talking about a pain, pain, how he hurts. An x-ray revealed that I had bleeding ulcers. And then to top it off, At 12 years old, my face was exploding with acne. What was going on? Well, they suggested that my mom give some special medication, but that she would consider me meeting with a psychiatrist. Well, I got to tell you, that was the day that um, my mom thought that that, that psychiatrists meant that uh, you were really, really, 
crazy and you're getting ready to be institutionalized. And unfortunately, we didn't go there. But fortunately, I began to dial in that I was stressed. I was filled with anxiety. Something was eating away at me. Something was causing me to be very worried. Went on a diet in order to treat the ulcers. The headaches had take years before they would begin to dissipate. Acne would get treated. But it, over a period of time, I began to unravel why I was so anxious. And to this day, I still, one thing that will make me the most anxious, one of my greatest fear is financial. And I have no reason to have financial fears. It's one of my most debilitating fears. It will cause me to collapse and go into a heap and just wring my hands with worry. Why? Why? Because as a little boy, I was one of three brothers and I was the oldest. I can remember many a day my mom coming in with two paper sacks of groceries. She would put them on the counter. And we just seemed to always be ravenous. We, would eat, we could eat through two bags of groceries and a couple of gallons of milk easy in a couple of days. And she would set it down and she would say, you better be mindful how you eat this because I don't know where the money's coming from to buy any more. And I believed her. That was never evidenced in my family, but I believed her. So I then set my two brothers on a rationing program. I was the guard at the gate, and I watched those groceries and that milk go down, hoping, hoping, hoping that we would see another two bags of groceries come into the house. Now, my mom was not being cruel. My mom was not a mean woman. She didn't know the anxiety that was going on in my life. But at that time, I was not a Christian. I had, no, I had very few thoughts of God. It was, I have to make a way. I have to preserve us. I have to feed us. I have to sustain life. And that created anxiety. Argument number one, Jesus says, you're not in charge. He's your, he's your creator. And he gave you life. He will sustain life. Second argument. Jesus tells them, to consider. Look down at verse 28. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Now, consider can be defined in three ways. It's a concentrated observation. It's a concentrated observation. It's not just a mere look. Number two, meditation. It's where you look at something and you begin to mentally think it through. You begin to do an inventory. You look at the lilies. You look at the stem and you look at the leaf and you look at the, 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 the big flowery, dusty center thing. You look at all of it. You meditate on it. You begin to think about how it is growing and how it is beautiful. Then thirdly, it means that you make a mental deduction. So Jesus is asking them to consider something. He's asking them to not simply look at something, but he's asking them to think it through. Use 
your mind in tandem with the faith that you have. God is my creator. God has a creation. I'm one of his creatures. I know that I see creation around me sustained. Therefore, he will sustain me. Jesus goes further here because he gives, as it were, out of the Old Testament, he brings before them the greatest example of, of, of glorious, gloriously uh, being appareled that he could ever give, which is Solomon. And he says, Solomon was so wealthy and so adorned as to be considered a glorious one. And he said, you look at the lilies, your father, your father will clothe you to the degree of your employment and your station and, and where he wants you. Your father is going to take care of you. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Consider the lilies. Let's take it further. I want to give you an example of how this works before we go on. Psalm 42, verses 5 through 8. Now bear with me. This is very important. This is worth the price of admission. I promise you, if you will do this one thing, you will never be anxious or worried or fretful. And if you struggle with anxiety and worrying and stress and fretting and wringing the hands, paralyzed in your thinking, it's a very miserable place to be. But if you will employ this, you will find relief. Psalm 42. David writes, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil, which is anxiety, worrying within me? He's talking to his soul. My soul is cast down within me. That's the diagnosis. Therefore, I remember the mind now begins to engage, okay? He sees the problem, turmoil. My soul, what's the result of the turmoil? I'm cast down. It's beating me up. It's beating me down. Anxiety in the heart of a man does what? Says the Proverbs. Anxiety in the heart of a man weighs it down. But a good word lifts it up. He's weighed down. I remember. Now the mind starts to consider. I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. And this is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 8. Here's the biblical historical record of God's people realizing his promises. God had made a promise to them. He said, you will be a people with a land, and you will be a people victorious in that land. I will give you that land, and you will be able to take it from my enemies. And in verse 8 of Deuteronomy 3, we read, so we took the land out, we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon Syrian, while the Amorites call it Senior. All the cities of the tableland, and all Gilead, and all Bashan, as far... This is a geographical record. 
And what David is doing is he's saying, I remember, I can look, like considering the lilies, I can look in my mind, I can see the layout of the land of of Jordan, of Hermon, and Mount Mazar, and I realize when I even look at the land, I look at creation, that God has sustained us and that He keeps His promises. That God will sustain us. And he begins to recount that. And just as a side road, in verse 11, there's a parenthetical statement about Og, the king of Bashan. He was was conquered. And that Og, you could go to this day in Rabbah of the Ammonites and see his bed that was a bed of iron. And that it was nine cubits in length and four cubits in breadth, meaning that there is a bed that still existed at this time in Rabbah like a museum piece that you could go and consider the bed. You could look at a bed that's 14 feet long. Og would have been one of those giant men. You can look at the bed, you can consider the bed and see more than a bed. You can see God's promise to sustain. God promised to deliver. And that is what happens. And so David goes on. He says, by day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. It's unchanging every day. Steadfast. And at night, when we're most apt to worry, Satan loves to thump us. He loves to get us in the dark. He is such a slime ball. He will, when you're on your bed at night, and if you're married, your mate can be sound asleep beside you, and you are just filled with worry. And he loves to beat you down. Particularly then, you can't do anything at all about it. But you can pray. And haven't you found that when you began to pray, and you consider God, and you reach out to Him, that Satan begins to leave you alone? I think what he does, he says, you know what? This ain't working. <laughs> you know, he's got a, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. If I make him worried and then he starts to pray, that ain't what I want. <laughs> That's not what I want. Jesus says, consider the lilies. Consider the birds. Look at those things. God is taking care of them. But as you consider them, And look at them. Bear in mind this one thought. He's their creator. But he's your father. And there's no father. Who would ever. Unless he's insane. And you can probably find an example. But there's no father. Unless he is insane. Who would feed his pet. But not feed his children. How much more our father values us than even his creatures that he has sustained and that he feeds. Down to uh, the third argument is began to look at the kingdoms. And I didn't, I didn't include earlier uh, verse 24, but I could. Uh, it, I probably should have in hindsight now included it. Because it really uh, helps us to understand what's at stake here and what's going on 
that causes, that's behind all of our anxiety and our worry. Matthew 6, 24 says, no one can serve two masters. You're going to hate one, love the other. And he goes down to label these two masters as, you cannot serve God and money, which is more than money. It's more than simply liquid cash. It's, the best name is mammon, but it's wealth and possessions. It's material things. It's the, it's the material things not only that we need, but those that we want. And the accumulation of those things. And he puts it forward here saying, it's like two kings or two kingdoms. Down in verse 32, he says, the Gentiles seek after these things. They seek, they're naturally, the Gentiles are those that are heathen. They don't know God. And he's saying, it's only natural for them because that's the kingdom and world that they live in. The pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of possessions. But he said, not so you. What about your king? What about the kingdom that you live in? He said, you're in a kingdom with a king who takes care of his subjects. He feeds, he clothes, he supplies the needs of those that are his. Back in verse 30 at the very end, Jesus makes the remark to those that are present and who are listening. He makes the remark, O ye of little faith. And this is not just a throwaway remark. What he's saying is that these people had faith. They were listening to Jesus. They had looked to Jesus now in faith. But the reason that it's labeled a little faith is because they have come to a point where they believed in Jesus now for the forgiveness of sins and salvation, but they don't believe Jesus for the care of their physical needs. They believe that He will care for them spiritually, but not that He would care for them physically. How about us? How about us? Which kingdom are we living in? Which king do we seek? Jesus does not, the reason He's given this command is He does not desire us to be anxious. And He's not like that old Bob Newhart, uh, stop it uh, skit, you know. He's not just saying, stop it, just stop it. He knows. What He says is, I want you to consider, I want you to consider me and the world that I've made. And I want you to consider how as a king, I'm a good king. And how, as a good king, I take care of my own. There is an account of where Mary and Martha were hosting Jesus Christ. I would encourage you, I've put it in the the outline, I would encourage you to read through that account on your own. And look at where one is anxious and one one is simply resting at the feet of Jesus. Both of those women loved and adored Jesus. But one was very distrustful that he would take care of the physical cares that they had. One was able to rest at his feet knowing that in good time, those things would 
course, there's their way out. They would be taken care of. Which one am I? Which one is my king? Jesus gives a prescription here. He says, seek the good kingdom. Seek the kingdom where we live and we've trusted him with our spirit and with our soul and we can trust him with our physical care. Now, if you have not trusted him with your spirit and your soul, I have no remedy left. Jesus has no remedy for your anxiety. You are on your own completely. Yes, he's still your creator. Yes, but he is not your father. And he takes care of his children. He longs to adopt you this morning, though. Wouldn't you like to lay your anxiety and your worry down? Wouldn't you like to have a father that you can now say, I don't have to worry about those groceries anymore. My daddy's going to take care of that in time. Wouldn't you like to have a king that you're in a kingdom and the economy of that kingdom is that the dwellers and the citizens there would be worry-free, care-free, anxiety-free, because the king, the king is the one that has the weight on his shoulders to care for every citizen because they're his children. That's the privilege that we have. And that frees us that we can now bring our anxieties and our worries to this king in our prayers. There's a story told as we prepare to come to this supper. There's a story told uh, by D.A. Carson. And the story goes like this, that there are two Jewish men with the rather un-Jewish names of Brown and Smith. And it's the night of the Passover. These men have been instructed that that night a death angel is going to pass over all of the streets and all of the homes in Egypt. And that the firstborn son will die in every home, on every street, in every family, except those homes where the blood of a lamb is put on the doorpost and the lintel. Those homes, the death angel will pass over. Well, Brown and Smith are talking. Brown's like, Man, it's happening. It's happening. Tonight is the night. Man, it is going to be so exciting. And Smith's like, uh, no, I'm, I'm afraid. No. He said, what? 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 Yeah, well, yeah, you, get, you put the blood, right? Right? Yeah, I, I put the blood. And, you know, we've been instructed by Moses from the mouth of God, and, and it's coming down, and, it, and he's made a promise that after he passes over, we're leaving. I've already got my stuff packed. And you believe that God delivers on his promises, right? Yeah, what's the problem? Well, well Brown, you've, you, you've got three sons. I've only got one son. What's well, the problem? He's going to pass over us. You got the blood of the lamb. I mean, don't worry. You don't worry about. Oh, I just. I'll be so glad when this night is over. Oh man, I can't even go to sleep. I'm so excited. All right. Which one lost a son that night? Neither one of them. Which one of them had a really troubled night, Smith? But which one woke up next morning and was able to look at the face of his firstborn alive and well and healthy? Smith, why? We still struggle with anxiety. 
And then to the degree that we embrace the promises and we put more of our faith, our little faith begins to grow. And we can rest. But it is not the intensity or the strength of your faith that keeps you. It is the object of your faith. You can have the weakest faith in the room and you still will stand ahead of me in that line. I'm going to be at the end of the, or I'm going to be in the first of the line. I'll stay ahead of you. But you can have the weakest faith in the room. But if you look at this table and you see Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you can look here and say, I'm not very strong. Pastor Phil, I worry a lot. I struggle with anxiety. I would simply say, consider him again. If he's given himself to you physically, he will take care of you physically. If he's given you forgiveness for sin such that you shall be with him forever, he will look out for you and you can trust him. And your faith will grow. I want to encourage our men to come forward as they prepare to serve us. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the very night that he was betrayed, took bread. And after he prayed, he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body, which is broken in your place. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup represents my shed blood. It represents the remission of sin. That is, the washing away of all of our sins. Drink this and eat this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this and you drink this, you celebrate my death on your behalf until I come. Let me pray. Father, we don't come to this table like the world comes to a glass of wine to drink in order to be able to forget our worries for a season. We come to this table with bread that you've provided, with wine that you've provided, that we might consider and remember all that you have done and all the promises of what you will do for us. Father, may the act of considering and eating this morning from your table strengthen and increase our faith. Forgive us for all anxiety and worry where we betrayed you and not trusted you. This morning, we make our approach because we trust again. As we pray in Christ's name, amen.